this week on the Back Table Podcast. <laughs> I ended up interviewing actually pretty much all over the country. And the other thing I noticed, aside from what you're describing about the differences in the pay scale and cost of living, is also the quality of the work. So like, you know, in certain high cost of living areas, they don't have as much what you would call, I guess, like standard IR stuff for an IR. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy, a resource aimed at improving patient outcomes with awareness, education, and optimized solutions throughout diagnosis, treatment, and follow-up. Their goal is to support healthcare professionals through the clinical pathway which takes their interest in Philips best-in-class technology and translates it to applicable skills for appropriate clinical applications. They continue to deliver strategic, valuable educational programs that meet the evolving needs of their customers. Philips Image Guided Therapy Devices Academy will give you access to upcoming live courses led by leaders in the field, self-paced distance learnings, on-demand case reviews, personalized peer-to-peer training, and comprehensive educational opportunities. From basic to advanced educational opportunities, they are dedicated to helping you achieve long-term success as well as competence and confidence with the Philips peripheral device portfolio. They look forward to working with you on your developmental journey. If you have any questions, please contact them at philips.pvmeded at philips.com. That's philips.pvmeded at philips.com. Now, back to the episode. Today, we've got a great episode. We're going to be discussing first jobs out of training. We've discussed jobs, especially first jobs, when they don't turn out so well. Previously, on episode 110 with Michael Brazza, Brazza going way back. Uh, and then episode 201, we had Reza Rojevi and uh, Kavi Devalapalli on the show to talk about good jobs versus bad jobs. Also talked a lot about you know what to look for in a job, especially when you're first starting out. And so today, I'm, I've got a special guest. He just went through the process, starting his new job, Pranav Moodgill. Welcome, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here with you. Yeah, for sure. And Pranav reached out to the team a few months ago and was like, hey, you know, this is the first class of graduating dedicated IR residents, you being one of them. And you thought it would be a a good idea to kind of talk about what this class is looking for in a job, right? Because it's it's different from what I was looking for in a job coming out um, 10 years ago. I thought it was a great topic to jump into. And so also, you having gone through it, you can kind of get, give us an idea of like what that job landscape looks like, both for people who are in training right now and also for employers, right? There's a lot of people with practices that are kind of scratching their heads because they're not really sure what the recent grads are looking for in a job and they want to be able to match that. So Pranav, can you start out with just telling us like where you, where you just finished up training, how it was being the first you know graduating IR class? Yeah. My background is I'm from Michigan. I just finished my residency, higher residency at uh, Beaumont Hospital, now known as Corwell Health in Southeast Michigan. I do have to mention, though, that I also went to the University of Michigan for undergrad. I know you guys have deep ties to Columbus on this podcast, so go blue. We'll edit that out. <laughs> the The idea for the podcast kind of came about because as I was going through the job search, 
so many employers were asking me like what what do people like you even want like what are you guys looking for and and i feel like i suspect that that question wasn't asked before during the ir fellowship paradigm because that had existed for so many years and so i was like huh this is interesting i didn't expect to have that question asked to me when i was interviewing for jobs so that's kind of how this whole thing got started i think it would be uh, beneficial to talk about i think for in terms of being like one of the like the first class or the first group of people graduating from the IR integrated residency, it's definitely been interesting. There's been a lot of challenges, I think, growing pains for a new program like ours. But I do think that our, for our program specifically, we've done a really good job of adapting to what an IR resident needs in their training compared to like the old paradigm. And therefore, it's also led to some perhaps differences in what an IR resident is looking for in terms of a first job. How big was your graduating class? So that's an interesting question. Basically, when I, when I first joined the program, I was the only IR resident. So I was kind of on an island, redheaded stepchild, as my program director would say. But when I ended up graduating, I had two co-fellows. So one individual joined me from our DR class, which was really nice. And then the third individual joined us from a different program. We kind of transferred in through the IR residency pathway. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's good to have co fellows because i imagine you started taking ir call at some point right yeah exactly so how did that work well the plot kind of thickens because the um class below us the individual transferred out to do anesthesia actually so that's kind of what led to you know maybe uh, impetus for for growth in the program ultimately it worked out as a, in a q4 system the DR residents of our program kind of share in the call burden, so ended up being Q4 between the three fellows and the group of residents. That's what it was when I was a fellow. It was me and a, my co-fellow, Robbie Morrison, and then we had the, the third week, so we were on call every third week, and the third week was a pool of residents. You know, it was like a, you know, whatever year resident did the call with the attending. So it was kind of more burden for the attending because they were on, they were called pretty quick by the resident versus the fellow could kind of handle a lot of stuff, uh, at least later in the year. But uh, was that kind of the way it went with you guys? Yeah. And um, as we speak, it's evolving even now from what I understand. So, you know, they have currently two, now they've actually grown the program to be two IR residents from day one. So eventually they'll have essentially four senior residents between PGY6 and PGY5. Oh, okay. It, it'll be brighter pastures in the future for the attendings, I imagine. Yeah. Okay. So when did you actually start looking for a job? Like what time of year was it? And then what was, what did you expect the job market to look like when you started looking? Yeah, no, really good question. So I actually felt like I started pretty early. I started probably, yeah, I guess it was January of my PGY five year. So about 18 months to graduation is when I started looking. Oh, wow. And I guess the reason for that is as many fold, but I just felt like I enjoyed talking about the job market with some of my, my senior classmates who had already kind of gone through the process. And then, you know, I guess they had kind of said, like to me and, uh, and people even above them had said, like, the job market is pretty good. So that was my expectation, you know, whatever that meant to someone in their first job search. And then as I went along, I kind of figured out what they were getting at and perhaps also like what could be you know, better or worse in a job, essentially. So was it, did the reality kind of match what you were hoping or expecting for when you kind of started putting off schoolers? Yes and no, I would say. I think, you know, obviously it totally depends on your perspective and, and what you're looking for. But 
in general, yes, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities. Statistically, if you look at like the number of offers on job boards, I think that would compel you to believe that the job market is very good because there's just so many jobs out there. With that being said, you know, there's also so many jobs that aren't listed on job boards and right. are filled through word of mouth or connections or other recruitment factors. So, you know, who is to say that like the, the very best jobs are routinely available now compared to, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. But in general, I do think that the job market is pretty healthy. I think it's, we have a skill set that's going to be in demand and it seems like we'll remain so. And so I think that will really help prospective graduates going forward. Well, let's get more specific on that. So when you started looking, or and it sounds like you discussed this a lot with your peers, whether they be older, younger, same age, or same year rather, what was it that you like specifically looking for? Was it 100% IR? Were you okay with doing a certain amount of DR? Uh, was it academics, private practice? Tell us a little bit more about what your specific requirements were. Yeah. And again, this like varies from person to person, of course. But for me, I went through like an evolution where I like, you know, initially I was like, oh yeah, 100% IR. This is what I matched into. This is what I wanted to do from day one. And then you go through the DR years and you kind of like get an appreciation for what that is for sure. And also some of the benefits of that job for sure. Ultimately, as I went through the fellowship, I kind of realized that I wanted to do a mix of the two. So that that's what ended up being my goal was to, to do a mix. For several reasons, one being that, you know, so many older IRs that I talked to talked about how they really valued having their DR skills late in their career for health reasons or what have you, call burden, you know, things like that. So I didn't take that, you know, I didn't just ignore that. That seems like a pretty big reason to keep your DR skills to me. Also, just thinking of it, I also thought of it in terms of like how much time I spent training and no matter how you slice it, you end up spending more time or years at least doing DR rotations in IR. So so in my kind of like schema, I guess, I was looking for jobs that were about a mix, even mix, I guess, of IR and DR, more or less. Oh, okay. So like 50-50. Yeah. You know, maybe 60-40 IR. And the thing is, people talk about these like mixes, but like, how do you really calculate that? Because you can look at RVUs, you can look at time, you can look at number of rotations or hours. And it's pretty hard to even really figure out what that means, I think, as someone who's just going through the job search for the first time. Right. Yeah. They, you know, people throw out numbers, ratios all the time, but it doesn't, you, you really don't know what it means until you get into that job. Exactly. I've heard some docs give this advice. Atul Gupta gave this advice when he was on, was some people coming out might even just try locums for a little while just to get a feel for different practices, which Locums could be a little bit daunting when you're quote unquote like green just coming out because you don't have the practice behind you that sort of support. Because a lot of times when you're locums, you're kind of all on your own. But I do, I like the idea of that because you do get to kind of try a practice out before you sign on for a job. Uh, and and if, they're, if, they, if the groups need coverage, then chances are they need extra IRs, right? Did you ever consider that? Yeah, no, it's a really good point, actually. Um, I actually have a cousin of mine who's in a, a different field in medicine, and he found his his now permanent attending job by doing locums. And he did locums initially straight out of training and then kind of found his niche or whatever he liked and then and then did it. I thought about it for sure. I think it, you kind of have to be in the right time frame in your personal life, perhaps, to do yeah. that. Definitely not for everybody. So you have to have that personality. You have to be flexible, right? Because you have to like, 
work in different environments constantly in your first couple of years out, which, you know, I, and this was a big thing that I thought about is, you know, definitely early in the in your career, like you want to set good habits and really hone your fundamentals. So I wasn't sure if I could have done that ideally in like a locum setting. So that's kind of how I ruled that out personally. For sure, people have done it. I'm sure it's worked out well for them. But I just, yeah, I just didn't um, see myself doing that initially. Uh, yeah, I mean, I did. I could see where it'd be a little bit scary, especially, and also, like you said, it depends on your life situation. If it requires you to travel a lot, then, you know, if you got a family or a wife and what I, it might not be ideal. So going back to the sources to find actual available positions, you know, we all get the ACR job boards and there's some on SIR, you know, there's various job boards out there. What did you find that be the best sources? Because I heard you know, these were academic attendings, but they'd always say, well, the best jobs are the ones that aren't listed, but that might just be, <laughs> that might just be, you know, that sort of, you know, academic perspective. But what did, what did you think? I mean, word of mouth is obviously important as well when you have somebody that can kind of like get you in. It's almost like when you're buying real estate, it's like the hip pocket, you know? <laughs> It's the hip pocket listing. It's like you want that before a bunch of other people learn about it because you might be able to get it without a bunch of people interviewing. And I think I think the employer feels the same way. But I want to know like what you found the most, you know, to be the best sources. Yeah, no, I think in terms of like just convenience and like in terms of like if you look back at like for instance the number of interviews I went on or the number of prospective jobs I talked to, the the number, the highest number was from the ACR job board for sure. SIR job board, you know, also perhaps Although those kind of overlap quite a bit, so it's kind of hard to separate the two. But in terms of like when I look at myself or my peers who ended up, like where did they end up? They mostly ended up in jobs that they heard about through word of mouth or through recruitment dinners. So, you know, that is that is one you know unique aspect of being a trainee perhaps is that you are targeted, right, by prospective job hirers and, and they will, they know where the, where the prospective people are and they're in training programs, right? So they will send an email to your program coordinator and be like, hey, you want to have a recruitment dinner for your residents. And then next thing you know, you're sitting at like a steak dinner with four different attendings from XX private practice and they're whining and dining you and you have to think about <laughs> if that's the job for you kind of thing. So that's actually yeah not not quite to that extreme extent, but that's at how I ended up found, finding the job that I ended up taking. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's got, that's awesome that you got wind and dine. <laughs> the market was so bad when I came out and I was trying to find a job in Dallas so I could be with my wife and I had to cold call all the groups in town, none of which were hiring. <laughs> and, and finally, you know, the group that took me in was like, you know, we don't need anybody, but we could use a, an extra diagnostic person. So as long as you're willing to do a diagnostic call, you're, you know, welcome. And uh, so it was a little bit challenging. I had to kind of crawl my way into the IR, on the IR side of things. But, you know, it just depends on the market you're in. I mean, I, you know, I, it waxes and wanes, right? It goes up and down. And it sounds like you guys have a great market right now, which is phenomenal. It's, I think it's a great place to be in, to have a lot of choices and so forth, because that's going to help you with your job satisfaction and stability and, and staying in the same place, right? And so, I, you know, we've talked about good jobs versus bad jobs on the show before, and several docs have talked about why they like their jobs, whether it be academic or private practice. And there's definitely common denominators when it comes to job satisfaction. But I want to hear from you, what were the top, say, three things that came to mind when 
when you were thinking of the ideal IR job? It doesn't even exist. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question for sure. Um, and definitely something that trainees need to think about. And it's funny because I think initially when you're, when you're coming out, you're thinking about like, oh, you know, I'm going to get this big payday. I'm going to get way more time off. I'll have better benefits. And, and maybe that's like the first three things that a trainee thinks about in their first job. And so you're, you're trying to optimize those factors. But all, as I went through the process, I realized that eventually what I was looking for was a group that seemed very happy, seemed like they treated each other fairly. And, you know, this has probably been talked about ad nauseum on, on your podcast, other sources as well. But there's always like a dicey relationship, right, between IR and DR within these kind of practice settings, private practice settings. And so you have to kind of, you know, get a feel for that, uh, reputation of the group. So those are probably the top three things I eventually realized were important. You know, in terms of like, you know, obviously pay scale, location, and time off, pretty much what I was told is like, if you can get two out of three in any job, you're, you're in good shape. It's really hard to really get all three things out of your top three. And if you do find that, then you're probably not going to change jobs for a long time, if ever. So does the ideal IR job exist? You know, again, it depends on the person. I'm, I'm sure it exists for each individual, but can every single person be in that exact situation? Probably not. So you have to make compromises at some point. And what you're willing to compromise on, you got to figure out pretty quickly too, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. Location and pay tend to be not directly cor- correlated, right? Because yeah, if you know you want to be in San Diego, you should know that either you're not, you're, your money's not going to go as far and you're probably not going to get paid as much. Same thing with LA. I have a friend of mine at a residency ended up in LA area and her salary was like half of mine in Dallas. And it's, it's ironic, right? Because like the cost of <laughs> living is higher in LA. Yeah. And so, you know, it's weird. Those groups know that people want to live there. Yep. And so they can get away with that. Whereas if you're in North Dakota, well, you better pay 3X what Dallas pays because <laughs> it's going to be hard to recruit there. And so that's the huge difference. I mean, that that's the whole thing is what my friend in LA was making could make 10x that in North Dakota, right? That's that's the that's the degree of difference. It's like practicing the UK. It's crazy. <laughs> I ended up interviewing actually pretty much all over the country. And the other thing I noticed, aside from what you're describing about the differences in the pay scale and cost of living is... Also, the quality of the work. So like, you know, in certain high cost of living areas, they don't have as much what you would call, I guess, like standard IR stuff for an IR graduating resident. So you're kind of stuck doing more basic things and you're kind of used to doing like tips and Y90 and, you know, BRTOs or what have you. So so that's kind of like something you got to kind of, um, I guess, accept if you're going to take a job like that. And, and definitely, you know, a lot of people do because... So much of our population is in big city centers that are high cost of living. So you just have to know that about the situation. Also, one thing I noticed about some of those jobs is um, they don't have as much support systems. Like, you know, you might be on an island somewhere. You might be not having as many, like I would say, PAs or NPs helping you out. Or uh, you might have like more of um, an assortment or like, I guess, uh, a group of techs and nurses by committee, so to speak, less regularity. So those are the kind of subtleties that exist in some of those kinds of jobs that maybe you wouldn't think about at first, but once you really delve delve a little deeper into them, you kind of get that sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for sure. 
what was your it was location one of the top things for you because for me lo- location was definitely above pay because i knew that pay was going to be pretty good no matter what but yeah location was i think a top priority for me well how was it for you yeah no it was interesting i went into the job search process and i even told like some of the higher ups in my department like i'm probably not gonna stick around i'm probably gonna move somewhere i have you know, close family on either coast um, and good friends on either coast. So I was envisioning leaving, believe it or not. A couple factors played into how I ended up staying, which included my wife's job situation, which she really likes her current role. So so that ended up being a big factor in our decision. But despite that, I will say that I was weighing in my mind all a lot of the things that we already talked about, about going to a coastal city, higher population and less support systems, I guess. But I agree with you. I think like, you know, ultimately we're all going to do well financially, I would I would think, or I would hope. Obviously there's like always talks about Medicare cuts uh, in our future. But despite that, I think, you know, we generally do pretty well. So then, you know, you, you think about location as um, a, f- a major factor for you. Uh, you just have to accept that, you know, you might be taxed more in a big city. You probably will be. And like you said, the cost of living is just higher. So Actually, for me personally, like location was not a major factor, but it's, I guess I was just surprised as how my search kind of unfolded. And then I, I ended up staying, even though initially I was not thinking I would. So Were there any other surprises other than that? Well, so the, the surprises kind of came after the fact. A- after I finished my job search, I guess, I, I'd heard about like what had happened at a couple of the practices that I was uh, heavily considering and uh, without getting into too much detail, it's just it just seems like, you know, sometimes it might be the case that the IR guy is, is so crucial to the practice that the entire contract is kind of dependent on that part of the practice. And so when that falls through or they can't, like, find someone or guarantee coverage, I guess, the whole thing can implode. And I, I'd heard about that happening wow. um, somewhere. So I'm not sure if like, you know, if I had signed with, you know, such group, if that would have been like enough to keep the, or I guess just, you know, they talk about like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. I don't know if that would have been the case, but it does make you wonder though, if like, if it came down to something as simple as that, especially for like smaller groups that just don't have as many numbers, I guess, or can't really flex out as much. Yeah. How important was, I mean, you, you, you mentioned support. So size of the group may, I mean, it's plus minus in terms of support. Sometimes a group's so big. And like you said before, they're so focused on DR that it tends to not be as supportive. And sometimes a group is so small that it's like a family. And so it tends to be very supportive. But was the size of the group an important consideration for you? Yeah, I think, and I do want to delve into this a little bit more in terms of like the different types of, of jobs out there. But when I think about support, I also think about like the people that are not employed by the practice, but play into like your daily function, right? Like I talked about the techs and nurses, for example, and also some groups don't employ their PAs or NPs. But in terms of size of like the group, in terms of number of radiologists, let's say, it was definitely a factor in the in the sense that I was thinking about like how stable is this group going to be going forward? Because if it's, it, it just seems like the smaller groups are are more either tempted or either the target of private equity coming in and kind of swooping in. I don't know about you, but it just seems like at the trainee level right now, there is like quite a bit of, um, how do I say this? Like, 
a negative connotation for like with private equity groups and private equity jobs, which may be unfair. Actually, I was I kind of fell into that initially, and I and I kind of ruled out pretty much like all private equity jobs for me personally. But now that I think about it, I think you know there's definitely a time and a place for them. I think that they could be attractive roles for certain individuals, especially in like big cities where they're kind of saturated with private equity groups. And if you really need to be in that city, like, yeah. and that's what you're, you can make it work, I think. I think you just have to accept, and like anything, like the compromises I talked about before. So I think size of group in terms of like the number of radiologists, you have to think about also the number of IRs within the group. Because you can have a big group that's like, 98% DR and there's only like one other IR person well then the size of the group really doesn't matter in terms of your your functioning as an IR you know the whole private equity conversation is, is for another podcast <laughs> and we've had we've discussed that a few times but one, one thing that's an upside about it is you're basically an employee you get paid a salary so it's, it's the same payment in your checking account every month and usually there's you know productivity bonuses and whatnot and you're not locked into a partnership. So it's, you know, there's no buy-in. A lot of times you're just, you're an employee, you get paid a good amount and you don't have to go to partner meetings. You don't have to do all this other extra stuff that comes with being a partner. Now, that being said, you know, some of the private equity groups do enforce pretty like strict non-competes, you know, those sorts of things, you know, so there's, there's, there's pros and cons to it, right? I could see both sides as well. I think it just... It's not good healthcare when all groups are owned by private equity, right? I think mm-hmm. we could agree agree on that. It, it's nice to have a diverse landscape of job opportunities out there, I think. Yeah, no, and definitely I think a lot of, um, you know, trainees kind of come out of it as in that kind of like worker bee mold because you've never owned anything. You've only ever been a resident. And so the partnership thing is pretty foreign to you. So I could definitely see like how it could be a good fit for someone. Yeah, I mean the the partnership. There's all different tracks, and they're all some are very convoluted. You know, some of these buy-ins are very expensive, and then if you get locked in and you 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 lose your flexibility, if you want to change jobs, you might you might lose that money. You know, so there there are definitely downsides to partner tracks and partnerships and whatnot. But we don't need to get into all that. I I wanted to find out more from you. This actually is along the same vein, actually. So Mike. Bratz and I did an episode a couple of years ago about when that first job doesn't work out. And we brought up a few things that can lead to job dissatisfaction. Did anybody give you any advice on like red flags to look for? What do you like? What do you, what were your thoughts on like maybe like top three reasons you would leave a job? And what did you see any red flags in your search? One of a, it sounded like you, you were trying to avoid small groups because you were worried about them being a little bit too tenuous in terms of ability. I think, and this is, a lot of this comes from just conversation with older attendings who have switched jobs, you know, at various points in their career. And, and by the way, I should mention that I think statistically, the chances of you staying in your first job forever is the odds are against you. Let me put it that way. So, with that being said, I think the top reasons people probably would leave their jobs is because either a lack of fit, so whatever that means in terms of like maybe you're not doing the right types of cases, or maybe you're doing too much DR than you'd like to do or just in the wrong location. So whatever that means for each individual person. And I also think there's like this, there's like this kind of attitude, maybe, maybe it's in all of medicine really, but just thinking that like the grass is always greener on the other side, right? So maybe you think like, oh, if I join this other job across town, 
I'll be so much happier or whatever. And so, you know, maybe that's what drives people to change course. I had heard of that happening in my area. So, and then apparently that didn't work out for that individual. So, and then it's, it can be tough to come back, right, to your original job. So you just have to think about like, also when you, when you do switch jobs, if you do switch jobs, like you don't want to burn any bridges if you can avoid it, you know? So I think those are kinds of things I heard from my elder attendings in terms of um, why people would leave. Then also in terms of job satisfaction. Red flags in my search, I would say something to think about is like how the groups are communicating with you. Do you feel wanted, I guess? It's kind of a subtlety and maybe you won't realize it at first, but I think, you know, if you feel like something sketchy is happening behind the scenes, you know, where there's smoke, there's usually fire. So I'll give an example from from my search. So with COVID and everything, it seems like remote reading has kind of picked up. And so one of the questions I asked one of the jobs I was looking at was, when essentially am I allowed or am I expected to work remotely? And essentially what I was told is that, you know, we have these shifts that are remote and they end at a certain time, yada, yada, yada. But uh, but the contract that the group has with the hospital doesn't actually state that they are allowed to do that. And so they were kind of bending the rules to do that. And if that is the case, then it kind of puts you in a weird situation because, you know, if you're expecting to work from home and that could change at any time because the contract doesn't say it, that's kind of like what I mean by, you know, something is sketchy behind the scenes you know, maybe you should avoid that. So just an example of a potential red flag that you might see. There was a recent New York Times article, I'm sure you saw it, talking about OBLs and- You're Talking about the PAD article. Yeah, the PAD article, yeah. You know, a lot of OBLs do focus on PAD work, but, you know, in, in IR, we do more than just PAD, right? We're doing embolization cases, um, UFIs, you know, prostate already embolization. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of procedures you can do safely in the OBL space. And so I was wondering, because I know some of the, OBL owners get this, ask this a fair amount is, was it an OBL part of your job search? Like, were you looking for that in terms of, you know, what a, pra- a practice had to offer? Or did you even consider an OBL only practice that had no hospital aspect to it? That's a great question. I was, I was just talking to one of my colleagues about this at SIR. His brother's actually also an IR and uh, he started an OBL, I think relatively soon after he finished training. And so He's been wrestling with this question as well. But basically, for me, I, I thought about it for sure. I think it's tempting for sure because you just came out of a brutal fellowship where you did a lot of call and they're telling you that you don't have to do nights, weekends, or and no call, basically. So so that's pretty tempting. I, I think uh, I wanted to take like a wait-and-see approach to see how these OBLs kind of work themselves out. Um, also, I, I think for me personally, it's important to hone my skills like in the inpatient setting for both IR and DR before I kind of make that leap. So that that was just my personal thoughts on the matter. I think, you know, there's potential a ton of potential in the OBL space as we've seen. Interestingly, one of my one of my attendings in my training program left to start an OBL. So and he took one and then eventually two other attendings with him, believe it or not. So it's been interesting to follow uh, their progress. Seems like they're doing pretty well. And and just see like, you know, because that's, I guess like what I get, what I'm getting at is the most common like switch is from, you know, the, from doing an inpatient heavy IR call kind of lifestyle to the OBL setting, which is very different. It doesn't seem like a lot of people, I mean, there have been examples for sure, but it's less common that people go from OBL to OBL. And part of that is also because 
OBLs are kind of building are kind of building themselves up, and also there's like a partnership aspect to them and an ownership stake in the equipment. So I think just for me personally, it was like kind of a wait and see approach. Uh, I think OBLs themselves are trying to figure themselves out for the most part. So I'll give it some time. Yeah, I mean, there's still fluctuations in reimbursement, and you know, I've talked to a number of OBL owners that are hiring people about this. Is like what at what point is a a young attending ready for the OBL space because I, I think everybody wants a, a fresh grad to have a few years in the hospital to kind of get, you know, those bad, get those bad cases out of the way, you know, cause it, 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 your training definitely continues in your first few years. I just admittedly myself, I learned so much in my first few years as an attending more so than fellowship because you're, you're on your own and you do <laughs> suffer unfortunately complications and and just knowing how to kind of deal with those without somebody looking over your shoulder is is a key part of that. And so the OBL space being more of like an independent space, it is good to have a little bit of that that confidence that you develop after those first two or three years to like just for does you know just decision making. And so you know that makes sense to me. But that being said, I've seen people come straight out of training into the OBL space, and they seem to do fine as well. I think it's just where your confidence is, and also how maybe entrepreneurial you are. Because I think the ones that go straight into the OBL space, like they want to be a part of that business. They they're not just, they don't want to just be a hospital employee or a partner in a hospital based practice. Is what I've seen at least. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see also how does the society and the, the training paradigm may shift or pivot to maybe include OBL as part of the education, which would be interesting to see also because I think we're just so used to as trainees, like the inpatient complex, like multi-organ transplant, trauma center kind of environment. And the OBL space is, is definitely different. So could it be incorporated into our education? That would be an interesting question. Would we do outpatient rotations or partner up with an OBL and, and do rotations there? That'd be something to, to consider for the future too. All right. Well, so as we start finishing up here, I, I want to find out if you have any advice for those who are looking at a job, how to make that decision, right? If you're in between two or three jobs, is it just you trust your gut or do you reach out to mentors? What seemed to work for you in your search? Uh, I'm sure it wasn't just like a slam dunk. I, I know for me it wasn't. Um, how does... How did that process? Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the various options and the different environments throughout the country. Uh, one person I reached out to, I don't know if you know, Sorel Gore, he, he makes a lot of um, YouTube content too. He was instrumental in kind of guiding me personally. But also I think, you know, you can share with your mentors, you know, the details of your, you know, what offers you have and kind of compare and contrast with what you've been told and what your expectations are and what's out there. Because this is pretty new, especially for the trainees. Like they don't know what the numbers really are until you get into it. So, you know, and then on your interviews, you know, I think obviously take them seriously, but also understand that the interview process for for a new job or like your actual job is very different than any interview you've been on to this point. You know, medical school, residency, those are very different interviews. So now it's more like they are trying to feel you out and trying to figure out if you're a good fit for their practice. You're trying to figure out also, you know, conversely, are you a good fit for this job? And also ask the tough questions, you know, because if you, if you find out too late, then 
you're going to be in a problematic situation for some period of time. So you want to know, whatever it is you want to know, you need to ask because this is your chance, essentially. Yeah, we did a recent episode on the ENT show, actually, where it was a practice administrators for like one of the biggest ENT practices in the country. And he was actually giving advice for people who interview at jobs to ask for the financials. Like, hey, I, you know, ask to look under the hood. You should you should be allowed to do that because how are you going to know, right? How are you going to know if they're financially sound? Like you're investing your time and energy and sometimes even money into this practice. You need to really do due diligence and that and that doesn't just include like culture fit and are they doing the right cases it's you got to take a deep dive into the financials as well and i didn't even think about that we don't think we're not trained to think about that at all and you talk about stuff that could be added to our training as residents you know i think ai should definitely be but also just some sort of financial know-how would be a huge you know value add to our um to our residency training. I think some other res, you know, specialties add stuff like a uh, urology buddy of mine says that they actually get some, some business in um, practice management trained to them during residency, but I've never heard of that in, in radiology. <laughs> Have you? No, no, but somehow it doesn't surprise me that urologists, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> urology yeah. has that in their training. I think it's, it's important to think about like this whole process, especially for the people who haven't been through it as like a, it's essentially like a black box. So you have to understand your priorities. Also important to take everything with a grain of salt. I, I can't even, I would have to say probably 90% of the practices I interviewed at that were non-academic we're like, oh yeah, we're we're gonna have Y ninety. We're building Y ninety, but it, yeah. there's no way that all like ninety percent of those groups could could have a Y ninety program, right? So, so you just have to take everything with a grain of salt um, and kind of you know understand that you know even if it's not the your final job, right? Um, as long as you're getting what you need to at that point in your life, just, just go with it and just see how it goes. I think that's some that's something that someone told me on some level. And I think, you know, it's fair advice for, for your first job search. And they should be willing to answer questions or at least give some sort of valid answer why they can't answer that question. Because, you know, that to me, I think is a red flag when there's, when people just aren't answering questions. Transversity is key and that, that was kind of what I was alluding to with that, the guy in the ENT practice. But the other thing is negotiations, and we that this is for a whole another podcast discussion. But just a quick note on negotiating: I think another big red flag is when they they shut do- any door to negotiations. I've heard so many stories of people who basically were told no, and then after the fact they find out that somebody that interviewed that same year got something that they asked for. And so it's sometimes these these groups who recruit they kind of bully around the the interviewees. And, and so that, that to me is a big red flag is they should be willing to negotiate. I mean, you can't get everything under the sun, but there should be a conversation to get yeah. what's important to you. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. I think exactly. You have to know what's important to you first before you even come to the negotiating table and then really be clear about what you're asking for. Cause I think if you're just kind of vague or you beat around the bush, you just end up wasting time for both parties. So that's, that's kind of key. If the job is like, you know, known to be very good and you know the people or someone has referred you to it and you're not getting the right negotiations, I guess as long as they're being fair about it, like you man, you mentioned that, you know, you find out later that someone else got a better deal. 
I think like I guess my what I'm saying is if that isn't the case, like if everyone is getting the same deal and and they're and they're doing that on purpose with intention and it's being and it's fair, like maybe it's okay. But and that's kind of what I get at in terms of what the top three things to look for. It's one of the things I mentioned was fair treatment. So as long as you're treated fairly and you're, everyone's given an equal shot, then that will reflect later down the line how the practice functions and how it treats their partners and their employees and. And all of this negotiating stuff and transparency is is just even more important, I think, when you're going for a private practice group compared to maybe like, let's say, an employed position, because those groups may not share as much because you're not really the partner, you're not really the owner, right? So something to consider is that private practice groups really should be probably the most transparent out of the, the bunch. You're right. I think there are, you know, a lot of times if a group's like, you know what, this is the package, this is what everybody gets then you could always just say, okay, cool. Can I talk to somebody who you just hired last year? Or can I talk to somebody else who's, who else is interviewing right now? Right. Just to kind of get an idea of like, if that's, if that's real or not, that's, and this is where it can get problematic with like what, what men are getting paid versus what female attendings are getting paid and those sorts of things. It does happen. It happens today, like present day. Mm -hmm. It's still, still, all that stuff's still happening. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you just got to, you just got to shoot for transparency, whether you're the interviewee or you're the employer, the employer should know that everybody wants transparency and you got to be willing to provide that. If you're hiding something, then you're not going to be able to hire the right people. That to me, I think is a, is a key thought. And, and to, to wrap up, I wanted to ask you like for the employers who are listening, people that, you know, that are running these groups who are looking for to hire an IR, especially when that's graduating from the, you know, the new IR residency, what advice can you give them to, for finding the right candidate? That's kind of how we, we started this whole discussion off, right? Is, right. is that they, someone had asked me that question. And, and I think, I think the advice I'd give to prospective um, practices um, that are looking for, for these kinds of individuals is you have to be very clear about what you, what you need coverage for, because I can tell you right now that there is a probably Percentage-wise, my guess, more IR residents graduating now that want to do 100% IR compared to the old fellowship model, uh, just because of how these residents end up in these programs, right? They're pretty much figuring out earlier than before that they want to do IR. So they're kind of pig- not pigeonholing, but they're kind of like, um, I guess, focusing on IR earlier. And so they're kind of more geared towards that kind of job. So if that's not what you're offering, you just need to tell them that from day one. And then if that like criteria is met, then it's just probably like any other job search at that point. You just got to make sure you're getting the right, I guess, personality, someone who will be committed to your practice, uh, that kind of thing. All right, man. Well, solid advice. Thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, telling us about your experiences and good luck with, uh, when do you start? Oh, actually it's funny. I'm starting tomorrow. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> my my orientation starts tomorrow. I um just came back from Europe. Actually, I was uh, in your neck of the woods in Paris recently. But I guess you weren't in Paris. Yeah, we just missed each other. How was it? It was good. Yeah, I um got to see all the the various touristy areas of Paris. I'd never <laughs> been before, so and it was it lived up to the expectations. The weather cooperated, thankfully. I know Europe's going through like a heat wave right now. Well, not here, man. I, since we landed uh, last Wednesday, it's been 72 and it's been perfect. It just felt like San Diego the last five, six days. Pranava, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
and uh, looking forward to getting this out and getting this advice to uh, anybody else that's either looking for workers or looking for a job. Yeah, I know it was a privilege and a pleasure to be on the show with you. If anyone um, wants to reach out to me to discuss informally about the job search process, I'm happy to um, answer any questions for anyone. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 